I grew up working in a family landscaping business. It was started by my grandfather, uh, developed by my dad and his two brothers, and it's now run by my brother and several cousins. If you need good plant material, by the way, you should visit D.A. Hare and Sons Nursery <laughs> out on Route 91. I was looking to uh, assuming a third-generation leadership role as a landscape architect, which I did for a very brief season after graduating from the University of Illinois with my degree in, in landscape architecture until God completely redirected the trajectory of our lives in 1979. But the Small Business Administration tells us that family businesses comprise 90% of all business enterprises in North America and that 62% of the U.S. employment is in a family business. But only one in three of those businesses will um, hand over the, the reins to a second generation. And sadly, by the third generation, 90% of all family-owned businesses fail. By the fourth generation, only three out of 100 businesses Family businesses continue to function. And of these family businesses, nearly half have no succession plan in place, which is rather sobering. Maybe it's a good thing I got out 30 years ago. Now, what what those of you who are followers of Jesus may not know is that we've actually been drafted into a family business. You've got an exciting role to play there. And this family business is guaranteed to be a success. In fact, Jesus himself said the gates of hell can't prevail against his family business, the church. And there is a clear succession plan already in place. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series titled uh, How to Get the Life We Really Want. We began by saying that the first and foundational steps are to follow Jesus into experiences with the living God and into experiencing authentic community. And this morning, we're going to discover that God invites and equips us to join him into compassionately and powerfully extending his kingdom, and that this family business can actually be a place of profound joy, peace, and rest, the life that we really want. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful at the start of this brand new week for life, uh, soundness of mind, and health of body that allows us to set everything else aside that competes for our attention on a weekend. And for these few hours, give ourselves wholly to that which has become fundamental to our lives, loving and serving you. I pray, God, that for those who don't know you, that today you would draw them closer to you, that you would impart wisdom and understanding. For those of us who already know you, that we could grow. Lord, that your kingdom would come, your will would be done. Not just here in this room, but even right next door uh, where the kids are worshiping and learning and loving and growing too. We welcome you here. Put power on your word to our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. The phrase, what would Jesus do, often abbreviated WWJD, became popular in the United States in the 90s. You may remember it. It was and still continues to be a a personal motto for Christians who use the, the phrase as a reminder of their conviction or belief that a moral it's a moral imperative to act in a certain way that demonstrates the love of Jesus. And maybe they're prone to wear a necklace or a bracelet with the letters WWJD as that constant reminder. Interestingly, what many don't know is the idea can actually be traced back to Charles Sheldon's 1896 
book titled In His Steps, which was subtitled, What Would Jesus Do? In this very popular Christian novel, actually, parenthetically, it has sold more than 30 million copies, making it one of the highest, um, most popular selling books of all time. But in this book, um, the Reverend Harry Maxwell encounters a homeless man who challenges him to take the claims of Christ more seriously. And so when faced with decisions of importance, the Reverend Henry Maxwell would ask, well, what would Jesus do? And this would have the effect of making him embrace Christianity more seriously and to focus on its true core, which is uh, becoming more like Jesus. I have a good friend, Herschel Payden, uh, who has prayed for me for a number of years. And just the other week, he sent me a very short email, a, a note with the letters in the subject line, WWJD, followed by the note, watch what Jesus does. I thought, oh, that's good. That's really good. But if we were to ask, what would Jesus do, WWJD, or what does Jesus do, WDJD, where would we look for the answers? I would suggest the four Gospels, which are the Holy Spirit-inspired record of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, written or compiled by either first or second-hand witnesses. And if we were to summarize what Matthew and Mark and Luke and John actually reveal, I'm going to suggest they reveal three things. First, that Jesus uh, uh, cultivates a vital and intimate relationship with God as his Father, the living God, and that he experiences God in prayer, in solitude, in study and memorization of the Scripture and hearing his voice. We saw that in week one of this sermon series. Secondly, Jesus lives in authentic community with the 12 apostles, and we saw that last week. And thirdly, I'm going to suggest that Jesus extends God's kingdom through acts of mercy and compassion, truth, and power, and that's what we'll be focusing on this week. And when we follow Jesus into these three things, cultivating a vital and intimate relationship that creates experiences with the living God into authentic community and to extending God's kingdom, then what we're going to do is we'll do what Jesus does and we'll experience more of the love, the significance and the security that uh, that provide purposefulness more than we ever imagined, and we will be propelled towards the life that we really want. Now, we've been using a few key texts from Mark's gospel. I'd invite you again this morning to open to Mark's gospel, the third chapter in your Bible or your Bible app. Mark, the third chapter. He's the the photographer of the gospel writers. We, We believe that he got most of his source material from Peter the apostle, the first-hand witness. So Mark would actually be a second-hand witness who compiles a, a scrapbook, as it were, of snapshots of the life and ministry of Jesus. And we're looking in Mark 3, that we'll begin in verse 13. Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. And then he appointed the 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. 
So we've said that Jesus' first call is to himself. The apostles were to be with him. So our first and foundational call is always to be with Jesus, to experience the living God through Jesus. And the second call was to live in community. He called them. They were to accompany him. Uh, He gave them authority. It's always to the community. So our second call is to live in community, to do life together. And then did you notice that he commissioned them with authority to the ministry of the kingdom? It's summarized in the phrases uh, to preach in verse 14 uh, and 15 uh, to cast out demons. Now, if we were to look at Matthew's record of this same event, we would discover in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 5, these words. Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Give as freely as you've received. So in a, in a slightly expanded version of Jesus's uh, equipping or commissioning, we see that the apostles were called to announce that the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, Matthew uses this phrase interchangeably because as a, as writing to a largely Jewish audience, Jews wouldn't name the name of God. So they substituted for the word God, the word heaven, because heaven was where God lived. And so when you read Matthew's gospel, you can think kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven as dynamically interchangeable. Same thing. But they were to announce that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God was near or here or at hand. They were to heal the sick, raise the dead, cure the lepers and cast out demons. And they were to do all that, demonstrating an attitude of generosity, giving away freely whatever they'd received. Now, many of you may remember from your elementary school days, the thrill of show and tell. Some of you, are any of you, like, do they still do that today? Okay, they do. All right. Some of you don't have a clue what that is. I'm going to tell you what it is. When you were young, many years ago, we were able to bring something of interest. It it might have been an artifact, a souvenir you bought on vacation or that your parents gave you, some collectible. Maybe you collected rocks or stuffed animals or beanie babies or whatever, or maybe even a living pet. And you could show the class, and then you would tell the class about it, show and tell. In the fourth grade at Keller West, which is now Lindbergh, where I went, uh, I remember taking to Miss Howard's class a machete that my father, a long one, had had brought back from one of his many trips to Haiti. Now, today, of course, I would promptly be sent back home with that potentially lethal weapon. But that was back in the day. I was so proud. It was, it was hung on my wall, you know, and I don't ever what happened to it. But anyway, show and tell. Now, what we see in these passages in the commissioning of the apostles, they were instructed to show and tell. They were to proclaim and then demonstrate that God's kingdom had come. So through teaching, through preaching, and one-on-one discussions, they they were to announce or to proclaim the arrival of God's kingdom. That's the tell part. 
And then through acts of mercy and compassion and power and healing, they were to bring God's kingdom to bear. They were to, to make visible that which was invisible. The, the kingdom was to be demonstrated. That's the show part, show and tell, proclamation and demonstration. Now, so sweeping and dramatic and powerful, and the acts of the kingdom were so numerous that in Matthew's gospel, he summarized the second year of Jesus's ministry, his ministry campaign called the Great Galilean Ministry that's recorded for us in Matthew chapters four through nine. He bookended this sweeping summary with these kind of statements, Matthew chapter four Verses 23 to 25. Jesus traveled through the the region of Galilee. This is the great Galilean ministry that Matthew is summarizing. Teaching in the synagogues, announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and sickness and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went, people from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. And then Matthew bookends the summary in chapter 9 this way, in verse 35. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues, announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. So in these sweeping summary statements, we can see that All the sick were healed, blind, lame, deaf, epileptic, paralyzed, every kind of disease and illness. The demonized were set free from their oppression. The hopeless were encouraged. Sinners were forgiven. The marginalized were restored. Those who were far away from God were brought near. People were taught the truth of what it is to live under the rule of God, the reign of God, his kingdom, what it really meant to be his authentic community. We could summarize it this way. In those vast and diverse audiences, people received help for today and hope for tomorrow. They learned that God loved them, that they belonged to God, that they mattered to God, and that they could actually trust God for the needs in their life. And that was good news. The kingdom was extended as the the good news was proclaimed and demonstrated, show and tell. This is the life into which Jesus invites us to follow him. We've been talking about what it means to follow Jesus into the life we really want, and and, and we're now seeing this is the life that, uh, that Jesus invites us into. This is WJWD, what Jesus would do. Now, it's interesting that, The gospel that we're talking about here looks really different than the gospel we've frequently heard in our evangelical history, for those of you born and raised in the church. Well, you're not born and raised in the church, but you're (laughs) you're born in a hospital, you know, but you're raised in the church, if you know what I mean. 
In the evangelical church, the gospel is often communicated simply as, you are a sinner, you're condemned to hell. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and if you believe in Jesus, he'll forgive your sins, and you'll go to heaven when you die. Now, I'm not criticizing, I'm just merely observing, that in the church, there's been a preoccupation with getting people prepared to die and go to heaven, getting their soul saved. But I would suggest that we actually see very little of that emphasis in the ministry of Jesus. The good news that Jesus invites his followers to proclaim and demonstrate is the arrival of God's rule, his kingdom. We see that Jesus and the apostles that he commissioned proclaimed and demonstrated that God's kingdom was now at hand. And then they, through works of compassion and mercy and power, they said, God rules. And here's the proof. Show and tell. I think that's the family business into which all of us as his followers have been drafted. This is the the business that we're empowered uh, to be a part of. It's certainly true that we're born sinners and condemned to hell and that Christ died on the cross to activate every blessing in the kingdom, and that we need to be prepared to die. I don't want to spend eternity in hell. I don't think anybody that you know wants to spend eternity in hell. We need to be delivering them the good news that there is a better future for them. But somehow we've become preoccupied with just getting people prepared to die and hang on until then. And in the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus invites us to proclaim and demonstrate has very little of that emphasis. It's about not preparing to die to go to heaven, but rather preparing for heaven to come to earth right now. Being prepared to live the life under the rulership of God that really matters, the life that we really want. And the succession plan that Jesus has put in place is for his followers, the church, to continue the ministry that he began in the power of the Holy Spirit until he comes again. To make a new heaven and a new earth. That's the succession plan. Now the hiccup is that not many of us feel very qualified to extend the kingdom through proclamation and demonstration. To do the show and tell of the stuff, do we? We don't feel very capable of doing what Jesus did. Of telling and showing in that way. I suspect that the twelve apostles felt the same way. You want us to do that? I mean, they they were like, we can't do that. And I think it's the, the reason that Jesus began his commissioning in Mark 3, uh, Matthew chapter 10, with those words, that Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of illness and disease. None of you is a stranger to the concept of authority. Uh, living in the United States, we submit to the authority of our government through both the law of the land and the police structure in whatever state we live. Those of you who are employed work under the authority of your employer, uh, the personnel policy or the contract that you signed when you went to work there. There's authority in the structure of our schools. We, we grew up in school knowing that, that the teacher was the boss. And when you disobeyed that boss, you went to see the real boss, the principal. And getting to the principal's office was like you didn't want to go there, right? Because you knew you were in trouble. 
There's authority structure in the home and even in the church. And those who have authority, whether that's by order of the Constitution or their election or appointment or even by their position or title, those people are entrusted with certain rights, the rights to enforce rules, to grant permissions, or to administer things on behalf of other people. Authority gives ordinary people extraordinary rights. That's what authority does in all those dimensions. And so in God's kingdom, we receive the authority to act as his representative, to grant permissions, to administer on his behalf. Even if you don't feel like it, you've been granted it by Jesus, an ordinary person with extraordinary privilege. Think about it this way, just like an authority figure, a a police officer, a building inspector, a fire marshal, a school teacher or principal. They have power from outside of themselves, right? They're an ordinary person who's been invested with uh, power outside of themselves. And in this sense, as a follower of Christ, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to back up the right to act on his behalf the authority that he's given. We have power outside of ourselves. We've been deputized, as it were, to show and tell. We're qualified. We have the right, the power, to act on his behalf, to show and tell, demonstrate and proclaim the kingdom. So then what do we do? Great question. I want to finish this morning by giving you three tips that as we lean into following Jesus and extending his kingdom this way, I think it will be helpful. First, keep the division of labor clear. Did you notice when we read in in Matthew's gospel in that ninth chapter that the text read, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. A more literal literal rendering of that text would be that Jesus was moved with compassion. Now, numbers of us would say, yeah, but Ben, I'm just not wired that way. I'm just not moved with compassion for people. You know, while we may be sincere Christ followers, maybe you're one month old in the Lord. Maybe you're you're one year old or one decade old in the Lord. Maybe you would say you even love Jesus, you you read the Bible, you try to be a faithful member of a, of a local church, you want to live right, you want to make a difference with your life, but you would say, you know, it's just not first and foremost my wiring to be like moved to extend the kingdom. I'm, I'm just not wired by like compassion for people. Our heart does not compel us like Jesus. We'd prefer that it did, but we're just not convicted that way. Uh, In this sense, extending God's kingdom uh, would be our preference, but not our conviction. Well, here's what I mean then when I say keep the division of labor clear. You cannot do what you cannot do, and you cannot change your heart. None of us can. By sheer willpower and determination, pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, I'm going to have compassion for people. I'm going to be wired to... compel myself to share the kingdom and extend the kingdom. Now, you may have a new clean heart if you are a Christ follower, if you're his son or daughter. And for this, be grateful. 
But the truth is, it's wired in a certain way, and you cannot change the bent of your heart. But Jesus can. And so you do what you do. You do the praying, and you keep the division of labor changing your heart up to him. Don't try to do what you can't do. It's just going to lead to a life of continual frustration. But you can pray that God would change your heart to be like Jesus. He does want each one of us to look more like Christ. And Christ was wired to be moved with compassion towards people. And so ask God to change your heart. Which is why uh, I said keep the division of labor clear. Ask Jesus to move your heart the way his heart was moved for people. Uh, Ask him to give you eyes to see them as confused and helpless and beaten down like sheep without a shepherd. Ask him for eyes to see that behind their crest white smiles and their I'm doing fine, thank you very much, everything's cool, replies, know that when the shades are are drawn and the lights are dim, that all people everywhere are lost like sheep without a shepherd. And that inside their lives, they are lonely, they are hurting, there are pockets of pain and disappointment. They are facing obstacles that they do not have resources to meet. That's the people that Jesus saw. That's the people he he wants us to see. So pray that God would give you those eyes to see. They're all around us. And, 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 And he can give us compassion. He can cause us to be moved with compassion for those people. Where are they, you say? Because, Ben, I don't see them around me. Well, they're all around us. Jesus went on to say in Matthew 9 there, the harvest is great. And so that leads me to my second tip, which is to pray regularly that God would keep our eyes and ears open and our hands and feet ready. It's great, isn't it? The harvest is great, and they're all around us. We keep our eyes and ears open, our hands and feet ready to act, to serve, to care. Now, the overwhelming majority of us here today, those listening on podcast, we're never going to serve God full time as a missionary or a church staff member, or as a pastor, or assistant pastor, even in a not-for-profit or, you know, a parachurch ministry. Rather, we will follow Jesus' call into full-time discipleship, into what Eugene Peterson in the Message Translation of the Bible says in Romans 12, in our, quote, everyday ordinary, our sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. That's where we're, we're called to serve. And in the past, I've encouraged all of you to think in terms of three spheres of relationship, because you can't respond to the needs of the whole world, but you can respond to the needs in three spheres. First, vocational, where you work, your coworker, the clients, customers, at the office, at the factory, at the shop. Second sphere is geographic, where you live, your particular town or neighborhood or apartment complex or the street or whatever. Thirdly, your relational sphere, the people with whom you do life or at least regularly connect with, you know, maybe the receptionist at the doctor's office or the chiropractic office, the secretary at the school where your kids go, the checker at the Kroger where you buy your groceries every week, Tom who works at Jiffy Lube where you get your oil changed, your hairstylist, Jimmy, the clerk that I see at Panera every Thursday morning, you know, the people that you connect with. Think in terms of your spheres of influence and relationship in your vocation, in your uh, geographic sphere, 
and your relational sphere, people that you connect with. And my conviction is that these are the fields into which Jesus is sending us as his representatives to show and tell. The harvest that we'll see, are they exist in those three fields. That's where we are going to do the work of extending the kingdom, showing and telling. Well, what might the kingdom look like as we extend it there? Well, keeping your eyes and ears open every day for opportunities. Actually noticing things and listening to people. Uh, shoveling a neighbor's snow-covered driveway or chipping the ice off their, their ice-covered vehicle, as we had opportunity to last week. Offering to pray for a coworker who is sick or walking with a limp or wearing a sling, or if they just inform you that they were just diagnosed with cancer. Going to a hospital or a care facility where maybe a family member of one of your coworkers uh, lives or is, is currently residing. Listening with non-judgmental acceptance to a friend or a neighbor as they unpack their concerns about a, a child or uh, a, a grandchild who is struggling or uh, strayed from God or is, is, is suffering in some other capacity. Tipping 25 or 30 percent to a single mom who works a second job at Steak and Shake to make the ends meet. Hosting a neighborhood barbecue and just being hospitable to your neighbors, getting them together and actually introducing them maybe for the first time, even though they live in the same apartment complex or live on the same street. Serving on the PTA. Is that what they call it here? Parent Teachers Association or maybe the Booster Club if your kids are in club sports or uh, sports or a, a band or a music club or a dance troupe. You know, serving on the boosters in some capacity. Engaging honestly, in a conversation with a clerk, maybe at Walmart or a teller at the bank or the secretary at the school office. And as you listen to them, reflecting what you actually hear, God gave you two ears and one mouth, so you listen twice as much as you talk. And then blessing them with a gift card at Christmas. And it will blow their socks away. A $5 gift card, mind you. That's all it takes because no one's ever done that for them before, to show appreciation for who they are. Asking someone if you can pray for them right now about the need that they just shared will, will often like totally surprise them that you would demonstrate God's care and love at that level that you would offer to pray on their behalf. Paying someone's unexpected auto repair bill or whatever. I mean, these are just a dozen of the ways that, uh, of the hundred or thousand of ways that we could extend God's kingdom and watch him go to work as we show and tell. Asking the Holy Spirit every day, just with eyes to see and ears to hear, arms and and hands and feet that are ready to move to express care, Lord, show me where you're working today. May I demonstrate the love of Jesus in kindness and compassion. Give me hearts for people that are lost, that are without a shepherd. You do the telling, he does the showing. We're just bequeathed with authority to be representatives on his behalf. Now, you know, as Steve shared earlier in our announcements, we, we organize outreaches every month because at times um, we need the training wheels on the bicycle to get us going. And it's, it's often a great idea to do it together. And so next Saturday we'll get together. We'll talk about what does it mean to just extend God's kindness and compassion by engaging in a conversation and asking them to uh, receive God's kindness through a gift card at Walmart. 
And it's really, really easy, even though that might sound terribly threatening to you right now. Trust me, uh, once you engage at that level, you'll find that you can share God's love in a non-threatening way. Uh, Now, we, we, we understand that living an outward focused life like we're describing cannot be reduced to a church program, much less one that meets one time a month on the third Saturday of every month from 10 to noon, which is what we do here. But it's good to do them together in, in some ways that somebody else organizes them and provides the structure, the scaffolding. So we just come along and maybe you come along with several other members from your small group or a husband and wife or you can bring your kids to show them this is just part of a normal, natural, everyday lifestyle for outward focused Christians. And then we go and we demonstrate God's love in practical ways. And there may be occasions when in those conversations you can, you're afforded a privilege to actually pray for someone and see God's power come. Maybe not. But our goal isn't to convert somebody to Christianity, nor to get them to come to the vineyard. It's to just share God's love and extend his kingdom in the way we see Jesus modeling and commissioning us to do. So next Saturday, uh, we're going to do that. Uh, 10 o'clock, huddle up here. So first thing we do is we keep the division of labor clear. The second tip, keep your eyes and ears open, your hearts and hands and feet ready. Thirdly, keep our heart ready for the sweet reward. You remember how good it feels when you're able to sincerely help somebody? The last time that happened, you remember that swell inside of you that was like, oh, that was so good. You remember that? Yeah, that's because God designed it to work that way. Uh, For us to receive a heightened sense of satisfaction and gratification is the way that he has designed the human spirit. All through Jesus' ministry, he appealed to our desire for reward, significance, and satisfaction as a reason to extend his kingdom. Do you realize that? He was actually hedonistic, Jesus was. Give, and you'll receive. Your gift will return to you in full, Jesus said. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, making room for more, poured into your lap. The amount that you give will determine how much you give back, Luke 6.38. Jesus appealed to your sense of greed as a way of giving away. Because he knew that when you do, it will swell up inside you and, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, and be motivated to extend his kingdom more. Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to them. You lend without expecting to be repaid. And then your father in heaven will reward you. He appealed to our sense of gratification, that groundswell of significance and, 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 and meaningfulness in us when we do good deeds. Uh, on another occasion in Mark 10, Jesus said, I assure you that everyone, every one of you that's given up a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or children or property for my sake and the good news will receive now in this lifetime 100 times as much, along with persecution. He was appealing to our sense of desire for reward as a motivation to keep extending the kingdom through sacrifice over and over and over. You'll notice in Jesus's ministry, he's appealing to our desire for a reward, the sweet reward of significance and satisfaction. And so don't ever feel like you need to apologize for feeling good about feeling good when you minister the kingdom. That's the way it's supposed to work. It's fuel. Your your sense of gratification and reward is fuel as a motivator to continue extending the kingdom. Because God knows that when we follow Jesus in the ways that we're talking about, 
into connecting authentically with the living God and having experiences with him as our father. When we follow him into genuine community and we follow him into extending his kingdom to others, we're going to finally find a sense of love and satisfaction and significance and security more than we've ever known. We are going to be experiencing what Jesus intended for us to be fully human. We're going to tap into the life that is real life. John 10.10, the language Jesus said was rich and satisfying. You're going to tap into that. You're going to be propelled towards the life that you really want. We'll taste the rest and the joy and the peace that he's actually ordained for each of us as his kids. Let's go for it. Lord, we really do want the life that that you want for us. And sometimes we're, we're mixed up about what that is. But I, I pray that even over the last three weeks, you'd continue to like sharpen our, our focus and our understanding and then give us grace to step into the, the life that we really want. Even though we may not have thought of it in those terms, we, we, we can now begin to see more clearly that the joy and peace and rest that you desire comes in following you. Not to be simplistic about it, Lord, but that's the powerful, simple truth. Grace our lives with the ability to follow you in this way. And even now, Lord, as we offer up our hearts and our hands um, and our pocketbooks, our lives really in worship and in the offering, we pray that you'd receive these for what they are, tokens that, that want to say we love you and want to make our life count fully for you in your name. Amen.